Hello and welcome to episode number 62 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on August 31st, 2009. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we're with Ben Falk, who is the founder of Whole Systems Design, LLC, which is a permaculture design studio located in Vermont's Mad River Valley. Ben is a designer of integrated systems, incorporating aspects of architecture, ecology, and microclimate into his designs. Ben Falk, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Good to be here. Thanks, Frank. Let's start by having you tell us about the Whole Systems Design Studio. We attempt to integrate different parts of uh, what we call human habitats. We think of uh, all of us as, as being part of some habitat, whether we're aware of it or not. And we see building, built and biological systems as composing that habitat. It's not just um, the architecture or the construction or the engineering, and it's not just the landscape that we kind of live in and around and by. Um, so our work is an attempt to integrate those aspects um, on, on the site level. So we work, uh, most of our work is, is master planning and site design where we site buildings, access ways, roadways, paths, production systems, resource systems like plant and animal systems, uh, especially related to homesteads and farms or school campuses, and help the client and the client's team connect all of those parts to form a high-functioning whole. So um, when we site buildings, for instance, we start at the site level. We, we start from the outside in where architects tend to typically, or to architecture is typically started from the inside out, um, we say, well, what is, what is the site first? What are the, the circumstances of the site? Where's the wind blow from um, at different times of the year? Where's the sun? Where are the shadows cast? Where is it cold? Where is it warm? What are the microclimates like? What are the soils like? Are there certain habitats uh, of animals and, and plants that are living on the site that need to be taken into account? And then how might this new building, let's say, that we're siting and designing, fit into that context where we, we work with a heavy emphasis on, on, on context as a starting point, not on the design idea, not on the image of what we have in our mind as, as a product, but on what is the place first, and then what can we do here that fits in optimal ways. Um, so our buildings take, tend to take their cues from the site very directly as well as from the lifestyle and the circumstances of the humans using those buildings. But those two aspects, really, the site and site conditions, and then the humans, human conditions, the criteria that come from how people are living, how many people there are, what their, what their ages are, their habits, their desires, those two aspects, how do those fit together, the human side and the site side and all of the, that the site represents, the living community of the site, how can those two sides human and, and site come together. And to us, when those fit well, that's good design. Your farm has an abundance of different species, and uh, from looking at your website, it seems that those species are carefully combined to promote beneficial relationships between and amongst them. This is the mm -hmm. permacultural concept of guilds. Can you talk about this concept and how it plays out on your farm? Sure. I think of guilds as, as just positive plant associations. So um, 
a good example of, of one I'm actually looking at right now is, is a plum tree, what we call a plum tree guild. We have a lot of plum trees because they grow pretty quickly on our relatively heavy clay soils um, and don't need a lot of fertility. And the plum trees that I'm looking at have an association of other plants and, and fungi uh, uh, um, grouped with them in order that the plum tree is grown in an optimal way. So while we, let's say, want the plums, we don't just plant a plum tree. We plant a plum tree, and then we mulch with wood chip mulch around the tree. And then we plant comfrey, which is a, a, a dynamic accumulator plant. It mines the subsoil and brings nutrients and minerals to the surface and allows access to those minerals uh, and nutrients by the fruit tree that it, the fruit tree wouldn't normally access. So comfrey is growing in the understory. That also suppresses weeds like grasses, which would compete with the fruit tree. So it facilitates the fruit tree in that way by weed suppression and, and uh, nutrient access. And then uh, as an outgrowth of having the wood chip mulch, which holds in moisture, uh, we have fungi uh, being grown and mycelium running through the soil and, and wood chip interface. And we promote certain fungi intentionally, uh, such as wine caps, strafaria mushrooms, which fruit when the moisture conditions are right, when the weather allows, around the fruit tree. So by having those, uh, those members of the ecosystem together in one place, we achieve multiple solutions uh, with single action. So instead of just promoting, we're promoting plums, but we're also getting edible mushrooms. Uh, we're getting comfrey, uh, green manure, which is good for the tree, but also can be pulled off of that area and put into our compost pile for, as a compost accelerator and enhancer. And it's also good chicken food uh, for our chickens free-ranging through the area and has other uses like for salves and, and, and um, topical treatments. So that's one example of a guild. And every, every plant has its different associated members that help facilitate its growth and the overall bettering of the health and the productivity and the resilience of the whole system that each guild represents. Yeah, a lot of the work with guilds has been done uh, in a practical sense by permacultural permaculturalists all around the world, um, and I have not seen any real, you know, kind of hard research data or research energy going into this. But it's certainly an area that we need to know more about. We need to explore more deeply, and we need to look more deeply at the full suite of guilds that are available to us so that we can really push this forward and see all the different uh, potential combinations that exist out there that, you know, many of which we might not have even discovered yet. Absolutely. There's so little research, um, as Mark Shepard mentioned in, in your interview with him, um, along the lines of intentional ecosystems, permaculture systems, um, we, we, we get a lot of our information and inspiration from natural systems through observation, but it, it, we have yet to come to the point where we've researched in uh, empirical and, and hard data ways what interactions are most positive in different locations, uh, from climate to climate, from soils, from certain soils to other soils. We, we have uh, hundreds of years of research ahead of us to, to figure out um, the best interactions, and that's really, I think, the, that's the true applied ecology work that the humanity has before it or one one part of it at least i just read an article by blake hurst in the american uh, the article was was a good one and it's provocative 
Uh, but in this article, Hearst writes the following. Norman Borlaug, founder of the Green Revolution, estimates that the amount of nitrogen available naturally would only support a worldwide population of a billion souls or so. Basically, Hearst is arguing that without chemical fertilizers, we won't be able to feed people. Now, uh, this Blake Hearst is a farmer, and he's more of a conventional farmer. He puts it in quotes, an industrial farmer, because he doesn't like that uh, term. And he also, uh, he, you know, a lot of the pushback from Michael Pollan's work focuses on some of these technical details, but it seem, uh, seems that a lot of these folks, whether they're farmers or not, they don't really know about or understand permaculture. What is your response to Blake Hurst's assessment of the nitrogen problem? Well, it's, it's an interesting quote, um, and what it says is that, well, we need the nitrogen from in the ground, because there's only so much nitrogen on the planet. Um, if, if our planet, we're getting incoming sunshine, but we're not getting nitrogen from out of space. So we, we kind of have what we have of that element. Um, it's a question of where is it and how do we cycle it and how is it accessible, kind of like the food crisis, like there's enough food to feed the world, but it's, it's not in the right places at the right time. I think you could say the same thing for nitrogen. Uh, I, I would suppose that Hearst is saying that we need the nitrogen in the ground and fossil fuels to feed the world, which... I, I'm not sure if that's the case or not. If it is, we need less people because, of course, that's a uh, that's a dead end uh, road to go down. To say we need to uh, always be dependent on on kind of the IV drip of, of of fossil fuels to feed our our food system to feed humanity. Um, in a, an ecological approach, would say let's harvest as much of the free nitrogen available in the atmosphere as much as possible. Let's say through nitrogen fixing plants. The whole suite of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of, of plants or more worldwide that harvest nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put, put that nitrogen into the soil, that fixed nitrogen. Um, and, of course, that's why nitrogen-fixing plants are, are pivotal. They're kind of anchor points in, uh, in permaculture, in agroecological systems, in any ecological agriculture. They're the fertility pumps. They're pulling this great fertility that we can't see that's in the atmosphere around us all the time and putting it in the soil. They're the free fertilizer and the renewable fertilizer. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a different approach. There's also the approach of saying, well, we can also get more nutrients, not necessarily nitrogen, but nutrients from the subsoil through certain plants that mine the subsoil. I guess one's approach is kind of inherently non-renewable, and one approach is, is inherently uh, a focus on trying to renew the resources that exist on the surface of the planet and in the atmosphere without mining the fossil resources that are, of, uh, by nature, non-renewing. Yeah, I have a couple of comments of my own on this debate. One, Borlaug's calculations, I would imagine, now I haven't looked at the details of his calculations, and basically I'm just taking this from this article written by Blake Hurst, but they're probably somewhat similar to back-of-the-envelope kind of calculations. I, I doubt that there's any really sophisticated, advanced modeling that's going into this. And getting at what you were saying, um, I doubt that they're looking at the nitrogen use efficiency of uh, the systems that we currently have. That is to say that... The, the available nitrogen in the soil isn't being used all that efficiently or all that effectively 
and that's why we're getting a lot of runoff into rivers, um, you know, and just a lot of loose nitrogen out there. Uh, the, this problem of nitrogen saturation is well known by uh, ecologists, and that's why we have this huge space of dead hypoxia zone in the Gulf of Mexico. So I wonder right. if, you know, this is an oversimplification on the part of Hearst and Borlaug in the sense that they're not really looking at the nitrogen use efficiency of our agricultural systems and looking at strategies to maximize that as opposed to just saying, well, let's just, you know, take natural gas, uh, take atmospheric nitrogen, turn it into fertilizers and say, problem solved. Um, right. It's easier to, if they're really concerned with the amount of nitrogen available, a first step would be let's conserve the nitrogen we've already mined in the soil and avoid the millions of tons a month uh, of erosion of nitrogen from our topsoils into the Gulf of Mexico every year just in this country. Let's, let's save the nitrogen we already have on the surface. It's also a lot easier to get it from the atmosphere than it is uh, from thousands of feet uh, in, the earth, in, in the Earth's mantle. But they're not getting that kind of support from their extension agents and their, you know, research scientists. Right. The farmers aren't. Right. I mean, the current model is, is mine the nitrogen, and like all the other resources, and then use them flagrantly on the surface of the earth and let them wash back into the, the great stormwater detention basin, the oceans. That's really what we're using the oceans and lakes and, and rivers uh, as the vehicle for. Right, so it's really... Guess, it's you know, From a permaculture perspective, we would see it much like, you know, people like Amory Lovins would describe electrical use. Let's, let's start with efficiency. Let's start with cycling the resources we already uh, have access to. And then if we inherently need more to feed the world, that's a different conversation, and that that's probably gets into a, a, a conversation uh, about how many people there actually are on the planet to feed and carrying inherent carrying capacities of the planet. Right. I think it's a mischaracterization to say that everybody that's part of this uh, sustainable food movement is just hands down, no ifs, ands, or buts about it against nitrogen fertilizers or chemical, chemical fertilizers. That's not the case. It's just that we're trying to elevate this debate and talk about some of these really important issues that we need to deal with. And sometimes it seems like the different sides are kind of talking past each other. Absolutely, I would agree. Now, I also recently saw an HBO documentary called Death on a Factory Farm. The documentary is basically about an undercover animal rights activist who videotapes what most folks would consider fairly cruel treatment of the pigs on an industrial hog farm. Now, for the hog farmers, this video is probably fairly standard, the, you know, the stuff that you see in it, throwing the hogs around, uh, confined spaces so tight that the hogs can't move, big trash heaps of dead hogs, and all the kinds of things you would see in an industrial farm. The film really focuses on the litigation that resulted from the video documentation, as the animal rights activists brought a uh, prosecution against the hog farmers based on this video documentation that they, that they had. Now, what struck me about the film was that the animal uh, cruelty suit talks about the fine details of what constitutes cruelties, but the laws and the legislation can't really effectively deal with this problem, which is ultimately one of separating the, the hog from the forest. At the end of the day, there really isn't any economic or agronomic reasons for animals to be in that type of confinement. 
What are your thoughts, and how do we free, reframe this debate in a permacultural context? Yeah, well, we, as you say, well, we can only separate the hog from the forest. Any product we're trying to produce, any, any, any animal or plant from its natural conditions that it's evolved into being in relationship with um, temporarily and with great uh, availability of cheap energy. And so we've been able to do that for a short period of time, for maybe the last 50 to 80 years, um, with all of the cheap fossil fuel that we've managed to access. Um, so we're, of course, going to be nearing the end of that era at some point. Uh, it's hard to tell when, but at some point uh, in the future, probably in the near future. And so we won't be able to do that um, for very long. We'll have looked back and said, well, we were able to do that for a, a couple of generations, probably at best. Uh, so that's where I think yeah, the, the eco ecological approach, permacultural approach is, is not just going to be um, – more beneficial, but just simply necessary. Uh, we, it, if we're if we're trying to produce, let's say, hogs, um, and we don't have uh, very cheap avail availability of food for hogs, cheap ability to ship that food, both produce and ship that food uh, far distances to feed hogs and around the planet, um, then we'll have to start thinking about ways of raising those animals and everything else. Uh, with more locally available resources. So, of course, in the, in, the, in the hog situation, I'm no expert at growing hogs by any means or, or really most animals, but that would look like uh, a more of a forested woodland ecosystem where less number of animals are grown uh, per square area and where um, management is less mechanized, more human-based, and uh, the feed and fuel of that operation is, is produced on site. Um, where forage crops, let's say, are produced, where, where there's free-ranging uh, happening. Those are low-energy types of production systems. And right now, for a short period of time, we've had the high-energy types of production systems, which, with all of their attendant problems like nitrogen runoff uh, from hog farms into local ecosystems um, and kind of inability to manage the intense amounts of resources that are concentrated in a single place when we when we do things like factory farming. So, but the scale of, of systems in that lower energy future or more expensive energy future is going to really change. We may not be eating as much uh, pork in that future. It may be hard to produce as much. It probably will be much harder to produce as much pork, let's say, um, when, we're not, when that pork's not based on mined fossil fuel resources uh, as its feedstock, which... Of course, when we eat factory farm food right now, we're really eating cheap petroleum in so many in so many steps. There's only a, a handful of steps between petroleum and pork uh, in the current farming model. For the, in, in most in what's most of the current farming model, the industrial model. So, our our, our diets will necessarily be more diverse. Um, they'll be more based around local resources. They'll be more geographically based, like they have been for for most of the thousands of years we've lived on the planet. Um, I think it'll only be a very short term where we where we do do things this way. I don't have any easy solutions because that's a, of course an inherent structural change to go from factory farming to more localized, diverse, intensive human um, in human managed agricultural systems from the mechanized industrial systems. Uh, it's not going to be an easy transition. We've we've we haven't been there long, but we've gotten ourselves very deeply down that road. So the transition 
will probably be very difficult. Um, we're focused on creating small-scale models for that transition to happen. Um, so at least we, we start to learn ways that those systems can work. Do you think that the animal rights activists are going at this debate in the wrong way? It seems like they're alienating the hog farmers, and some of these hog farmers, no matter what you do, you know, they're not going to change their point of view or their way of farming. But I think it's incumbent on some of these people, and I know they're out there, to just take a leadership role and say, you know what, it's just the right thing to do to not treat these animals this way. And from every angle that you look at it, it's just better to try to build these more integrated systems because that's ultimately the root of the problem. So what, I mean, what is your sense of the, the strategy and tactics of some of the animal rights activists? Well, without knowing in detail about this particular case, I mean, you know, I've long wrestled with that question. I used to be very involved in animal rights in college and have uh, kind of intentionally over the years shifted towards more of a resource produ production approach. I tend to think that it would be great if we adjusted our values and our ethics um, to, let's say, treat other species in respectful ways, like in this situation, would be um, changing a lot of the ways that industrial that industrial hog farm works. Uh, it works that way just because it's cheapest to work that way. So um, I guess I would say I, I tend to hold less promise in us being able to adjust our ethics um, and more in us being able to adjust the means of production and, and then having the ethics follow suit. Um, if we didn't incentivize uh, oil in the way we do and subsidize it, um, if we didn't have, um, if the resources that we have weren't uh, the cost they are, once, as energy gets more expensive, it will simply be too expensive um, to produce hogs in this way, and we won't have, you, we won't be able to afford to discard animals the way we do, um, to treat animals the way we do, to concentrate the amount, sheer numbers the way we have, because disease would be too much of a problem and we wouldn't be able to, to produce in that way. Uh, so, so the ethics would, would follow just by default. It would be great if we can shift our ethics before the resources shift, the cost and availability of resources shift. Um, I'm not necessarily hopeful that, that, that humanity on a large scale uh, will do that. We've tended to just do what we can given available resources and ethics taking a back seat. Um, the best thing that can happen is, is energy becoming expensive uh, relatively quickly, not terribly expensive overnight because that would probably be crushing and, and result in a, in a lot of chaos and violence because we'd be so, um, we would not be able to respond quickly enough. But if it gets expensive, in a reliable, ongoing way, year after year, so we can finally learn to develop um, effective, low energy, and by definition, ethical resource systems that care for each component in the system. You know, a low energy system, I guess, is, as a matter of course, happens to also a low energy resource way of uh, producing hogs, let's say, as a matter of course, is also a system where you can't afford to, to mistreat your animals. Um, it's good that those two things line up. I'm not sure if it's uh, if it's coincidence or not, but I feel like that's really the place we need to move is is, is based around um, valuing resources, of which, at one level, our crops are um, valuing those resources more thoroughly. Yeah, and that well, would provide the change, hopefully. 
not that the role animal activists aren't playing right now in bringing these things to light is not important. It, it totally is. And we've seen some change towards local food systems, more ethical food systems as a result. But until local and small scale is, is, is it, until it's cheaper to produce that way, uh, we won't see mass adoption, I don't think. Only by people with, with uh, plenty of extra money to spend on those things will, will we see adopting those systems. What, what you're talking about, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of David Holmgren, who's the co-founder of uh, Permaculture with Bill Mollison. And recently Indeed. he's uh, started to get into some futurist work, and he does uh, some futuristic scenarios where he talks about the two issues of peak oil and climate change, and he paints the picture of how things might play out based on the pace of one of those of of the interacting pace of those two uh you know scenarios so the what you the scenario the scenario that you're actually describing uh that most relates to david holmgren's scenarios is where you have fast onset of peak oil and slower onset of climate change uh so where the energy descent comes on rather quickly he believes that that's where permaculture will actually have the most use and the most value uh, and it's very similar to what you just described, where the energy crunch just kind of f forces our hand in changing our production systems. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think it would be nice to see the the um, the energy descent need and stimulus uh, come on at a steady rate and not precipitously. Uh, of course, we don't necessarily control how that will happen. Um, in Europe, for instance, and much of the world, they've been paying 10 to $14 a gallon for fuel for, for at least a decade and have managed to set up much um, lower energy-intensive ways of moving people around, producing food, housing people, and everything we need to do than we have here because we've artificially kept our, our, our fuel costs so low so we haven't had to innovate. Um, it's not going to be, I think, up to us whether uh, how fast the price uh, uh, and the availability of, of oil, let's say, of cheap fossil fuels uh, changes, especially on the climate end. That's even less up to us. I tend to think it probably will be more precipitous than any of us would like to see happen. Um, but our, that, our focus is using the existing cheap energy to set up systems, infrastructure, and biological systems that feed and fuel us. Um, that are going to be in the future much less dependent on those uh, that, that global flow of resources. Um, energy is available now. Let's use it to set up systems that don't need the cheap energy for the long haul, for the centuries and millennia ahead. Um, I don't think we have much say over whether it's going to get uh, mostly used up or used up to the point that it's very expensive or not. Um, I'd like to see a movement to... to uh, to, uh, of oil diversion, you know, of, of, of save the oil for the purposes of transitioning beyond oil. Um, conserving oil, is a, uh, you know, it's a valuable approach. Let's, let's, let's use less oil, but more importantly, I think, let's use it in the right ways to set up systems that are going to allow us not to need it in the future and, uh, and all other fossil fuels. There's plenty of fossil fuels around. I mean, what, I think the estimates on coal are 400-plus years globally, or maybe that's just in this country, but China has plenty of coal. So the, back, the background to that is, is the, climate, the climate bill that we're going to have to pay for using those resources, which well, well, Richard, may indeed 
very, very precipitous. Richard Heinberg just recently uh, has come out and said uh, that our coal reserves might not be, uh, you know, quite so abundant as once thought. And in fact, the the extraction of coal is heavily dependent on the use of oil. So as oil goes down, our access and ability to extract coal also, you know, correspondingly decreases. So it's it's definitely a complicated picture. Yeah. Um, but I yeah, definitely there's an interesting relationship there, and I think we will probably see, and this is very scary, but we will probably see doing whatever we can uh, to turn lower value forms of fossil fuels into liquid fuels that are so high value, which we're already seeing with the oil shales, um, the tar sands happening uh, all over the world, but especially in Canada, a lot's happening on that. Which, of course, the climate impact of that is is even much more extreme than just drilling for oil in its liquid when it's already in its liquid state where the earth did that processing having to process it ourselves with coal to turn some tar into oil comes with a huge climate cost um, so the amount of carbon emissions we've caused on on and the industrialization so far may be a fraction of what we've yet to do and that's why our our work we're focused on on design for climate change respond to climate changes plan for climate changes to happen uh, as much, if not more, than we are on reducing um, our carbon footprint and on ways of reducing climate change. We feel like we're beyond the point of trying to reduce climate change. Definitely we should do that, but we should also design human habitat systems to deal with increased severity of past precipitation events, wind events, extremes of cold and heat, and everything else that comes with a rapidly, more rapidly shifting climate. Yeah, well... The uh, back to and I really should try to see if I can tap David Holmgren and get him to come on this show. There's a there's a great website called futurescenarios.org that I'll link to that uh, David Holmgren talks about all these issues in detail and talks about the potential interactions between peak oil and climate change. And as far as I know, he's one of the first people or perhaps one of the only people who talks about both of these issues and how they're going to kind of interact with one another. But the, it, strangely enough, the the least ideal scenario that he describes, well, there's two least ideal scenarios. One is the lifeboat scenario where climate change, uh, rapid onset, uh, rapid and drastic onset of climate change, rapid and drastic onset of peak oil, and all potential responses are just basically overwhelmed. So uh, that's kind of the nightmare Mad Max disaster scenario. And then the other really unappealing scenario is what he calls the brown tech scenario. And that's where uh, climate change, onset of climate change is fairly rapid, but peak oil is not quite so rapid as we thought it would be. And it turns out that we still have, you know, some fairly abundant supplies of fossil fuel resources that then get invested and sort of contradictorily into, into responding to climate change on the one hand, but also you know, making it worse. So actually, it, it almost seems to me like these scenarios where um, the the fossil fuels are depleted more quickly are, are actually more beneficial scenarios overall. Yeah, there's the old adage of, you know, if a frog, if you have a frog in a pot of water and uh, you turn up the heat slowly, they don't jump out and they boil to death. Um, but if you actually drop a frog in a pot of very hot water, they jump out immediately. And I certainly am m- much more concerned with the uh, the slow boil scenario that 
we've already seen happening now for, for, for decades, if not longer. Now, let's just um, finish up with talking a little bit about the forests that you have on the, on your land and how you put those forest products to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, our forests are, you know, from a permaculture standpoint, represent kind of our zones four and, and further out, zones four and five. Maybe some you could characterize as zone three, where we uh, grow edible gourmet mushrooms from red maple and sugar maple and um, poplar uh, quaking aspen. Um, uh, but they're in the early phases of their development. So they're actually, you know, we're getting firewood from the forest. We're getting mushrooms. We're getting uh, various types of mushrooms, morels as well as shiitake and oyster mushrooms. Um, but they're not, you know, they're not in production, so to speak, just yet. We're much more focused on uh, the zones one through three and, and focused on, especially in zone, zones three, uh, fuel wood hedge production to, to ease the load on our existing forests and woodlands, um, the, the fuel would need from, from those systems. I live on land, 10 acres, that probably lost 6 to 10 inches of soil in the last 200 years. Like most of Vermont and New England and, and really most of the country, the soil maps say silty loam over uh, gravelly clay. And in most places, we just have gravelly clay with an inch or two of silt at best of, of, of actual topsoil. So we have to figure out a way of growing, let's say, our fuel, our, our cordwood, which is our primary fuel for heating buildings. In, in New England, it's been our primary fuel and probably will be again, I would bet, um, in the long term. How do we grow that fuel without, depending on our forest, because we've cut all our forests down, or three-quarters of them, in the last 150 years already, they've grown back, but we've cut them down for sheep and, uh, and fuel wood and potash production for sheep grazing. Um, already in the last 150 years. Luckily, they've grown back because our, our climate is so non-brittle. Um, but we will, I believe, cut them all down again very quickly uh, now that we have chainsaws and feller bunchers if we can run those uh, if we're cold and need, and need the fuel wood. So we're very focused on the, on the forest end of actually growing fuel wood hedges and coppicing and pollarding rotations with species like black locust and speckled alder um, that are quick cycling fuel wood producing, perpetually fuel wood producing hedges. Asking the question really, how many lineal feet of fuel wood hedge or fuel wood patches would a family of four, let's say, need to garden if we were going to basically garden our cordwood in the future so that we would at least have to depend on the existing forest minimally, uh, if at all. We probably will need the existing forest system for sure for fuel wood as well, but if we don't do something to lighten our load on the forests uh, in just, a, let's say, New England, and we have some of the most abundant forests in the world, um, I think it's easy to make the argument that, that these forests will all be cut down again like they were already uh, in the last 150 years. Well, Ben Falk, on that note, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. I'd also like to thank you for the great work that you guys are doing out there in Vermont and everybody that's listening supports the work that you're doing and most of the people that are listening are in some way involved in promoting permaculture and promoting a change in people's thinking so that we can address these critical resource issues in a way that's both reasonable and humane so thanks so much for joining us well thank you frank appreciate it
that wraps up this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. And I am about out of time, so I will just sign off by reminding you that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. You can learn more about that at creativecommons.org. Until next time, I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Saludos. Saludos.